You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and this week we're talking to various individuals at the recent Food Tourism Conference hosted by Fulcher Ireland. Last week I was at Food Connect in Tankardstown House in Slane and heard a lot of inspirational speakers, stories and even the odd song. So coming up on tonight's programme, we're going to hear from the conference MC who was well-known travel writer Paul O'Connilla. I'll be talking to a couple of the speakers, namely Daniel Klein from the Perennial Plate, who has been on the show before via Skype. And I was also talking to Justin Green from Bertha's Revenge Gin. Great story there. And finally, at the end of the show, you'll have a chance to hear me talking to two fabulous Boyne Valley ladies who went to school together and whose paths have crossed in recent years because of what they're doing now. And those chats are with Maria Flynn and Marita Collier. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. And while you're thinking about doing that, let's have a listen to my chat with one of Ireland's, if not Ireland's, premier travel writers, Paulo Cunilla. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Paul, we're here at the Food Connect conference and as a travel writer yourself, you're travelling all around the world, tasting the local cuisine. Where would you position Ireland on a global basis? <laughs> That's a good question. You start with the hard question. <laughs> Ireland is up and coming. It's, it's breaking through in a food sense. If you're on the ground here in Ireland, which I am a lot, travelling around, there has been an absolute revolution in food over the last 10 years. We talk about the, we now talk about our raw ingredients, seafood, meat, fish, or cheese, breads, with pride, which is very important. We used to do that. We realise that they're pristine and they're amongst the best quality ingredients you can get. There are producers who have a newfound confidence in producing their food and there is a new generation of chefs and restaurateurs that are putting that on the table for customers in excitement ways, in ways that are relevant to how people want to eat today. So here in Ireland there's been a huge step forward. There's still a way to go, it's still as possible to eat a bad meal in Ireland as it is to eat a good meal, but we're on the right track. Now the thing is when you pan out and pull the focus and you suddenly put yourself as standing in you know, um, the US or in continental Europe or even further afield planning a trip to Ireland, you don't have that level of detail, you don't have that level of knowledge, you still feel and think in terms of shamrocks, in terms of the Cliffs of Moher, in terms of Guinness broad strokes and I think it's been one of the things I've taken from the conference over the last two days our international speakers have given us a bit of a reality check in that regard it's not a bad thing, it's not a reason to be pessimistic, it's just that we still have a long way to go with regards to Ireland's image as a food destination When people are planning trips I would imagine that sometimes you get inquiries directly asking for advice where should they go, where should they stay where should they eat, are there any hot spots in Ireland that you would say you absolutely must go to this part of the country? Oh yeah, the, well the, first of all there's no doubt that Dublin and and the city in Dublin is driving the sort of the middle market, the new casual and the new cafes the, the sort of from the hipster ethos through to the the Michelin star restaurants Dublin drives a lot of that and it's only naturally that it's that way because it's the biggest population density in the country four and a half million visitors come to Dublin every year it's the main entry point to the country but it's not all there is uh, Cork is is very strong West Cork has, was a pioneer in terms of being a foodie destination before we even knew what a foodie destination was and it's still got that track record today feeding into Cork City uh, Galway has come on and made huge leaps and bounds in recent years not just in Galway City where they where there's now two Michelin star restaurants but throughout the county and the islands the Burren has made huge strides the Boyne Valley Kilkenny is another one I'd mentioned so there are regional this is the important thing here is that it's not just you're not saying go to Kilkenny because of X restaurant or go to Limerick because of you know you must eat this particular uh, cheese or bread or charcuterie or whatever it may be the importance is that there's regions because visitors don't usually travel for one thing they are 
you're thinking 24-7, you're thinking they're going to have breakfast, they're going to do an activity, they're going to have a walk, they're going to visit a museum, they're going to have a chat, then they're going to have lunch and a coffee. So you need to create a compelling argument to get them to stay for a length of time, not just one place to go. Are there any countries that Ireland should be looking to as a benchmark to keep continuously improving and building on these authentic experiences that we're hearing a lot about? Yeah, as a food destination, you mean... Um, Yes, not just countries, but I would look at destinations rather than specific countries. Um, Copenhagen has sort of blazed a trail over the last 10 years, um, and Denmark has a very similar population size to Ireland. 15 years ago, you you would have stood in Denmark thinking the food here is terrible. You know, they've got hardly any not, um, food ingredients. They don't produce much. And all of a sudden, you had Noma come along and revolutionise and foraging is a trend. And they've they've grown their own stuff and they've just created this whole new, new Nordic food movement from scratch. It's a great sort of why not story. Ireland can learn a lot from that and has learned a lot from it. Lima is another great example in Peru. Um, again going back a generation even even less time say 10 years people it was known as Lima the Ugly not a particularly beautiful city in many respects people came in and got out as quickly as possible because they were going to Machu Picchu and Cusco now it has three of the top 50 restaurants in the world in one district in Lima they got their act together they realised Peru has an incredible diversity of produce from the you know the 4,000 metre peaks of the Andes to the Amazon rainforest to the Pacific Ocean they had a talented generation of chefs come through and they got restaurants happening that almost created a sense of Peruvian identity on the plate so it's kind of like what's happening here on the ground in Ireland it's just that that story hasn't translated internationally yet but it will do two very different cities <laughs> oh absolutely but it just goes to show that food is a great leveler no matter what part of the world you're traveling in you need to eat three times a day right so it's it's an in and in in ireland we've just never thought of it as that we tend to have this functional view of food i remember growing up where you know lunch was almost something you just stuffed in to get out of the way and you refueled and and same with dinner and it was like you know no fish on a friday and all these kind of things that were disincentives to enjoy food um, but that is changing and that's the same wherever you go food can be enjoyed and here we are with an audience of people that have a real passion for food like that's one thing that they all have in common and it's great to feel that energy in the room yeah it is over the two days it has been there's been a really nicely curated mix of, of speakers you know there's been international perspectives Irish perspectives, we've had industries perspectives, we've had the views of small farmers and small businesses so over the two days you kind of come out with this, I've got pages of notes that I need to sit down with when I get home but the, the, the main takeaway for me has been that sort of energy and focus and determination in the room, you know people are listening they're, they're actively writing things down they're they're incentivised to go and make a change themselves. Well, we look forward to reading all about it in your next article. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Emil. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. So that was Paul, who was the conference MC, and I have to say what an excellent job he did in that role. It's not always an easy one, keeping people to time, but Paul did a great job. And still to come tonight, we're going to hear from some of the speakers. Gin maker and hotelier Justin Green, he spoke at the conference, and also the two fabulous Boyne Valley ladies, Marita and Maria. Marita is from Drummond House Garlic Farm, and Maria is from Bally McKenney Farm, and she does wonderful purple potatoes so stay tuned to hear those chats but before that do you remember in August we skyped filmmaker Daniel Klein aka Perennial Plate in the US and he appealed to listeners to send him details of where he should visit during a two-month trip to Ireland well he's here he's arrived with his wife Mira and very adorable and very cute son James and I met them all at Food Connect last week and had a catch-up with Daniel Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Daniel, the last time we were talking to you, you were in the States and you're now in Ireland. Welcome to Ireland. It's great to be here. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> I know. It's, it's a fantastic Irish day, I can tell you. Hopefully you'll have many of these during your stay, which is going to be for two months. When we last spoke to you, you were appealing to the public 
for suggestions of places to go in Ireland. Did you get a good response to that? We did get a nice response. We got um, we had a survey and there are 50 or 60 responses on that survey, which was lovely. And then the number of emails from different chefs and people across Ireland that sent us in their ideas made us a bit overwhelmed of trying to choose from the vast number of wonderful food stories that, that exist in Ireland. Were there a few that kept coming up again and again and again? Let's see. Um, there were there were some pl- things that kept coming up again and again, like um, connecting with the uh, the Fumbly in Dublin, and kind of all of the projects that they're doing. Um, just looking at what they the events they do at the stables above that uh, restaurant cafe, you see um, that's it was a great resource also for finding other people to to film. Um, obviously. Galway oysters came up time and time again. Um, a number of cheeses, across, you know, the wonderful cheeses that exist in Ireland. Like, which ones to choose, though? Nobody nobody knows. <laughs> so far, have you tasted anything that you thought, gosh, that's just absolutely incredible food? We are here at Food Connect, and they're treating us very nicely to bounty of food. And the cheeses definitely are. And the bread from Firehouse Bakery is also fabulous. There's a great showcase of some of Ireland's best artisan produce here. Yeah, it's incredible. And I've been wandering around the kitchen gardens with my son and we've been eating the the grapes that are growing in this in this tunnel. And so even you know, whoever thought that you there were I didn't even know there were Irish grapes. I thought it was too cold. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing and there's a fabulous pear tree out there as well that yeah. the pears are re- nearly ready for picking. Your wife is a vegetarian, so how is she getting on with the food? Well, my wife and I did meet in a cheese shop and we also got engaged in a Parmesan cheese cave. So she can, she can live on cheese alone, <laughs> I think. Um, Cheese and bread. So I, I think with all the, the lovely vegetables and everything that are available here, she will be fine. And she, I can occasionally convince her to have to try a bit of fish. She's not, she doesn't usually eat it, but with the bountiful seafood in Ireland, I think there'll be. A, you'll you'll talk around. Yeah, to a few things here and there. Well, that's very romantic what you're saying there about the two of you meeting in a cheese shop and how you proposed and some of the stories that you showed, the videos that you showed yesterday, the stories and those are quite romantic as well with the, the couple in Vietnam that work together and they make their food together. How do you get inspiration for making videos like that? We really, I like to say that we try to find the the best story that someone has to tell. Um, so it isn't necessarily what they think it is, but through questioning and through editing, kind of picking out what I would be inspired by, you know, and what, um, so yeah, it's not, the, it's not necessarily the message that they, they intended, but um, everyone has generally something to say, you know, something from their heart that is valuable. And so we try to find those little valuable bits or moments where people are vulnerable and share something that can help make others connect with them. And you really captured that perfectly with the lady in Colorado in the ranch who used to be a vegetarian and then met her now husband. Yeah, so that's the first video. Prior to uh, doing two months in Ireland, we did two months in Colorado. And the first video that we put out was about a a vegetarian who marries a cattle rancher and um, we love that story because we're, the show in a, sen- in a sense is trying to get people ha- um, to dialogue and to think about what they eat and think differently about it no matter which way it is just to get it, gain a new perspective so to share a story about someone's own perspective change and how they came kind of to a middle ground between what they believed what they thought they believed and kind of a different type of agriculture towards a balance that that's really what we're trying to look for as well as how to you know we all want good food so how can we come together and and make that possible for everybody and you're here in ireland you're going to make 10 stories while you're here so i'm really excited to see what these 10 stories are going to be you're basing yourself in a tie for a for a month or so yeah so 
we are going to film, we'll, we're going to release at least 10 films. In order to do that, we usually plan a, f a few more. Um, things inevitably fall through weather or, you know, whatever. Change, you know, things happen. Um, and so we're spending half the time in the east and half the time in the west, Athai being our base for the eastern half and just outside of Galway for the second half of our stay. Um, but we'll be traveling all around Ireland up to Donegal and down to, you know, West Cork, so everywhere. <laughs> and if people went onto your website, then they'll see the sort of work that you've done in the past and that might give them inspiration in terms of getting in touch with you about their story because you still are quite happy for people to engage with you, be it on social media or um, through your website. Yeah, so we, you know, People can go on our website and there's 156 films on there currently um, and obviously there'll be 10 more about Ireland and although we have done a lot of research and have many things lined up and are currently uh, scheduling and have things we're filming next week or starting on Sunday, um, that doesn't mean that something won't come up that really strikes our interest and, and change, you know, all the research we've been doing has been from abroad. So um, when you're actually in a place and you see what it's like and run across something, then there's always opportunity to follow that lead as well. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about doing or seeing when you're here? Um, I, you know, I live in Minnesota, which is uh, landlocked right in the center of the United States and although we have a, a lot of lakes um, the seafood is not something that we have in in the way that you do here so that is the most exciting for me both um, it's very cinematic as well as I get to eat it and that's always good so a bit of underwater diving filming would really appeal to you yeah you know got our GoPro that we can you know, throw in with the, the You're catch. all set <laughs> up, ready to go, no problem. Um, and we have our, you know, a drone that we could fly over the boat. Or, you know, there's fun little tools that we can use. But also, I think the sea oftentimes draws a certain type of person that may be quiet, but also a bit poetic. And we're always looking for kind of a little bit of the poetry in food. Interesting. Have you done any underwater filming um, we, we have, there's a film we made about a surfer and a biodynamic winemaker in South Africa um, called Meant to Be. And uh, it's one of my favorite films that we've made as well. And um, so we, we didn't do the underwater filming ourselves. We actually hired a uh, professional surfing photographer to film it, uh, which was a very smart choice because he did a, an amazing job and I probably would have been eaten by a shark because there was a shark in the water when no they way. were filming yeah and they actually all had to come in scary <laughs> i know very scary very scary well that's definitely one to look out for on the website perennialplate.com when can we expect to see your irish videos the irish videos should be ready around mid to late october um, we're wrapping up we've got three more episodes from colorado They'll be releasing in the next few weeks. And then I think sometime around we'll be um, showing some of the films at Food on the Edge and from Ireland. So um, hopefully we'll have a few finished by then and be able to share them. The pressure is on. Yeah, I know. Self-inflicted <laughs> deadlines. Silliness. Well, enjoy the rest of your time here in Ireland's ancient east before you head further down the country. And we'll see you again in Galway. Great. Thanks for chatting. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we're giving you an insight into the recent Fulcha Ireland Food Connect conference. And so far we've heard from travel writer Paulo Canila. And just before the break, we heard from filmmaker Daniel Klein. We're still to hear from two inspirational ladies based in the Boyne Valley who are producing some fairly unique products. But before we hear their stories, I have one for you about the oldest cow in the world. One of the conference speakers was Justin Green from Ballyvalan House in Vermoy, County Cork. And Justin is keeping Birth of the Cow alive in spirit, literally. 
Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Justin, birth is revenge. It sounds very interesting. It's a gin. It is a gin, and an absolutely delicious gin. And um, you're probably wondering uh, who's Bertha, which I'll touch on to later. But uh, before we, we, we go there, um, the gin, Bertha's Revenge Gin is made using milk whey as the base spirit, our own spring water from our own well on the farm. And, um, and we use a, a, a variety of uh, locally foraged botanicals, and some we have to buy in, obviously. Like, there's not much citrus growing around where I live in, in County Cork. And, um, and so we've, uh, you know, we spent uh, nine months working out our recipe and then when we were happy with the recipe we, um, we started into full production and, and have had it on the market since August 2015. Because I think most people will associate juniper berries with gin. Correct, yeah. The, for gin to be gin, there has to be a predominance of juniper. And, um, and gin, juniper gives it that sort of piney, resinous, sort of dry flavor that you, you'd expect from a gin. And coriander is another really important ingredient in gin. And uh, that gives it some spicy and citrus, no, citrus notes. And then after that, you can put whatever you want into it. And we have gone down a slightly spicy route because of uh, the way alcohol, as I mentioned before, has got a lovely luscious rich sort of mouthfeel to it and the, and the richness of the way it carries the spices incredibly well the milk way then that was an idea that you were given by somebody over in london correct when we were uh, researching our gin project we uh, one of the first things we did was book flights to london and uh, did a tour of all the trendy cocktail bars in london and talked to all the bartenders we also visited a number of distilleries and we had an epiphany when we visited a gentleman called charles maxwell who owns the thames distillery in london and he um, um, we sat down with him and we were asking him about you know, what style of gin to make and what, you know, getting uh, the benefit of his experience. And we did say to him, it was very clear to us uh, from the outset, we wanted to make a gin that was evocative of where we're from and using the terroir around us. And he suggested we, we look at the way alcohol, because it's produced in Carberry in West Cork, which is not far from Balivalan House in, in um, Fomoy. And um, he rated it very, very highly. And he says it's wonderful stuff. And so we left his office saying, right, I think we're on to something here. Now, Ballyvalan House is a very exclusive property down in County Cork, but you yourself, your career started in Shannon. Correct. Yeah, I know Limerick quite well, actually. I went to college in the Shannon College of Hotel Management and um, spent quite a lot of time in Dirty Nellies and, and bars around Limerick, probably too much time. But it, it gave me a really good platform in, in my career. And um, after my graduation, I went off to Hong Kong and worked for Mandarin Oriental and Dubai, Jumeirah Beach and Indonesia. I was working in Bali for, uh, with GA. HM hotels and then after that I, I ended up as a general manager of Babington House which is part of the Soho House group in the UK. All very swanky places. They're really, yeah, really uh, top end but a fantastic experience and if you're a hotelier you know I'm very very lucky and you know we're, we're lucky now that, that um, I can draw on all that experience and, and uh, apply that experience to what I'm doing now and in County Cork. It's a very different marketplace you know doing business in Ireland as I heard Tommy Tiernan say the other day you know we're an island off an island off the mainland and um, you know compared to working in the UK where you're an hour and a half from London you have you know 20 million people within within uh, you know two hours drive of you you know it's, it's a very different uh, uh, marketplace. Well the reason that you came up with Bertha's Revenge was because like many businesses during the recession there was a bit of a struggle there and you were trying to diversify and find a product that you could export. No for sure it's not just not just the, the recession it's also the, the extreme seasonality of the you know the tourism industry in this country you know as soon as the kids go back to school it's like closing a door you know there's a bit of business on weekends during the winter but it's, it's, it's very very seasonal and uh, whereas the UK we had you know the hotel was full 12 months of the year and um, so we're always looking for opportunities and ways of diversifying and we felt if we could um, create a, a really lovely gin um, that was had a really good backstory and evocative of where we were from it, it would uh, be something that we could export all around the world and would plug the gap in the winter and, and also secure perhaps the long-term future of, of, of the of the business and the property. Now, staying in Ballyvalan House is quite a different experience, I believe, to staying in another hotel. For example, you have communal dining. That's correct. Now, the whole vibe at Ballyvalan House is more house party than hotel. And, um, you know, we do one sitting every night for dinner um, and it's around a lovely antique dining room table with candles flickering on silver candlesticks and the fires roaring and all the guests sit together around one big table and it really works brilliantly. You know, we have people from all around the world and we put the Irish in the middle because they're the best talkers and the Americans are 
are good as well and um, some of the other nationalities I've ever mentioned need a few drinks to, to get them uh, fired up but they all end up swapping emails and remain friends long after they stay and, and many of them would say it was the highlight of their, their trip because they've been having dinner together husband and wife every night for, for the last 10, 10 days or a week and they really enjoy the whole party vibe Yeah, because it's always nice to interact with other people and especially whenever you're in a different country if you're not an Irish visitor, visitor if you're a tourist from outside of Ireland to meet other Irish people with, without going up and saying like hello my name is Sharon like talk to me no, that's for sure absolutely right and um, sometimes we don't have Irish guests staying but what we also have a lot of is wonderful Irish staff you know and they charm the birds out of the trees and you know the, the, the guests love the interaction with the staff and you know we hire people who are bubbly and warm and friendly and flexible and, and you know go out of their way to give everybody a good time and um, you know the, the whole vibe as I mentioned is sort of house party and it's very typical of the, the you know we're a member of the Hidden Ireland um, uh, group which is a collection of historic Irish country houses and they all sort of operate in very similar manner you know they're very homely they're not stuffy and um, and it, it really works the wedding side of the business is something that's hugely popular as well and that's what inspired glamping on site I believe that's right you know we uh, moved into weddings in in 2011 just after the, the economy went wallop our business fell off a cliff and we started getting a lot of wedding inquiries and that business really took off and we converted some old uh, farm buildings and created a wonderful ambiance for, for the exclusive country house weddings and um, and then you know the, the guests kept asking oh can we pitch a tent on on site in the gardens we had these wonderful gardens and um, and then that sort of just uh, spawned the the whole glamping uh, idea so we did more research into that and then in, in 2012 we put up uh, 12 glamping tents and they're really comfortable very stylish they have little futon beds and we put hot water bottles in at turn down service and they have dinner in the house and they have breakfast in the main house so their main house is still very central to their stay but they just sleep in, in the great outdoors and it appeals to people with a sense of romance and sense of adventure in terms of food, it sounds like you grow and produce a lot of your own food. Yes, we do. We, do, we, um, you know, we operated a dairy farm there years ago, so you know, we've always grown our own veg and kept rare breed pigs and hens and ducks and, and they, they um, play a huge part and you know food is, is a big part of what we do at Ballyvalan House and not only that um, the guests get very involved as well every morning after breakfast there's a procession out to feed the pigs and collect the eggs and it's really for the children but actually we find half the adults say can I come along as well and they absolutely love it and it costs nothing and it's just it's something that they really take away with them forever it gives them a real connection with, the, with where they are. And Bertha was a cow? Yeah who's Bertha? Bertha it was a, a grand old lady and she She's in the Guinness Book of Records because she was the oldest cow in the world. And she died, sadly, in 1993 at the remarkable age of 48 years old. And, um, and she also had 39 calves, which is uh, another Guinness World Record. And uh, she was a Drimmon cow and lived in near Sneem in County Kerry. And uh, was quite a celebrity during her lifetime. She used to lead the Paddy's Day Parade and raise quite a lot of money for charity during her time. She appeared on The Late Late Show. They had a whole uh, section of the show dedicated to Bertha just after her 36th calf or 39th calf in 1986 and um, you know we, we were, had to track the owner down and ask him permission to use, use her name for our gin and he was absolutely delighted we're bringing Bertha back in spirit literally. And why did you decide to call it after her? Well because we're using whey alcohol as our base spirit and whey is derived from cow's milk so we were sort of hunting around for an interesting funny amusing cow story and it didn't take us long to connect with Bertha and, and the man really responsible for connecting us with Bertha is, is a pal of mine called Turtle Bunbury is a historian he's written all the Vanishing Island uh, books and, um, and he actually attended Bertha's Wake completely by accident this kind of thing happens to Turtle all the time and he was down in, in 1993 driving through um, a little village and uh, went at Blackwater Tavern and uh, there was hundreds of cars parked all around the town, couldn't understand what was going on, and some chap knocked on the window, and Turtle said, inquired what was going on, and he said, well, the pub is packed to suffocation, uh, we're celebrating Bertha's wake. So he knew he wasn't going to get out of town that night, and he joined in and interviewed Jerome O'Leary, who was Bertha's original owner, and um, he wrote an article for the Guardian newspaper about it then shortly afterwards, and um, that's how I've, I've always been aware of Bertha, it was in the back of my mind, and then it didn't take us long to, to reconnect with it when we 
we decided to make gin using whey alcohol. They didn't dispose of her carcass in the most traditional way, I believe. No, they didn't. She has been stuffed by her owner and she's in fine condition. And uh, he very kindly lent Bertha to us uh, when we uh, launched our gin in Dublin last Christmas. And she, I went down to, to Kerry to uh, uh, take a uh, load her up in the van. And she's now owned by George Kelly, who was a friend of uh, Jerome O'Leary, who was the original owner. And George was very, very generous and let us use Bertha. And um, he, he, uh, she, she played a big part of our launch. You know, she, she, um, she's the face of the gin. Well, tell me then, what is the perfect way to serve up Bertha's gin? Bertha is lovely in a gin and tonic, and we recommend a nice sort of unsweetened tonic like Fever Tree and um, quite a lot of ice, you know, three parts tonic to one part gin and a simple garnish of a, just an orange peel this little bit of orange zest works really well with Bertha she's also because of the the quality of the way alcohol is so smooth and it's got a lovely generous mouth feel and texture and it's very very smooth um, we also recommend you can drink a neat uh, with a splash of water and uh, like a sipping gin as you would a single malt whiskey works very well and then the test of any good gin is in a dry martini cocktail and she just shines through beautifully. Is it widely available throughout Ireland? It is, yes. It's uh, in O'Brien's and Limerick, uh, off-licence. It's in um, you know all good bottle shops around the country, Celtic Whiskey Shop in Dublin, um, the Bradley's off-licence in Cork. Uh, you know, it's, it's getting good traction. We're in quite a lot of bars and restaurants and hotels now as well. And um, you can buy it online through the Celtic Whiskey Shop uh, in Dublin. Fantastic. Well, listen, thanks for talking to me today and best of luck for the future. Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we're giving you an insight into the recent Vulture Ireland Food Connect conference or if you were at the conference we're giving you a reminder of some of the speakers and some of the people we met there. And we started off with travel writer Paulo Canila. We heard from filmmaker Daniel Klein and just before the break we heard from gin maker Justin Green. Now, the final part of tonight's show is with two fabulous ladies from the Boyne Valley whose produce we were introduced to at the conference. Some people may have been very familiar with it, but I was not, and it was a delight to experience it. Firstly, we're going to hear from Marita from Drummond Farm talking about her garlic business. And then, because we're a bit pushed for time at the moment, we'll go straight into the chat I had about purple potatoes with Maria from Bally McKenney Farm. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Marita, garlic. I've never come across somebody in Ireland growing garlic. Yes, it's a bit of a different idea, but as we all know, garlic is as old as the pyramid, so it's not really that strange, but I suppose we associate garlic with sunshine and the Mediterranean and France and Italy and all the beautiful, lovely Mediterranean countries. And it was just something myself and my husband stumbled across by accident in India on a holiday. And, you know, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's grow garlic on a small scale on our farm and see how it goes so that's really where the story began what sort of farming were you doing beforehand we actually had stopped farming and my husband is in full-time employment we've 100 acres but through the farming industry and times and um, from an economic point of view it just wasn't viable we were tillage and dairy and it just wasn't making money you couldn't make a living out of it as so many farmers in this country at this moment in time struggle to find so with two young children um, we had rented out our land uh, over the past 15 years and we have a tenant farmer and it was a case of diversification as your children are growing up you realise this either has to work as a business or you do have to maybe consider the option of having to sell up which is a real fact of life for a huge amount of farmers in this country So you're growing garlic and you started off small and who did you sell it to initially? Well, we started off in year one uh, with just over an acre of garlic, um, which is considered anything over half an acre is considered commercial. So we actually probably started large without realising it. Sold to nobody in year one because it was a complete disaster. Everything went wrong. Uh, And I mean literally everything. What sort of things now went wrong? Uh, you name it, the weather, the water, the weeds, the lack of fertilisation and we researched it so much we thought academically we know how to grow garlic but physically growing garlic from the labour perspective as well killed us. 
So it's not a case of planting a seed in the ground and there, voila, there's garlic. Is there a certain type of ground that it prefers to be in? Yes, there is science behind it and Mother Nature has to play a part. So Mother Nature's beyond our control, but science does play a part. It's, it's an easy plant to grow, but uh, if you want to sell it, people's perception of how it should look and be perceived is a second thing for the marketplace. So um, it, it takes it takes a huge amount of watering, but you can't overwater. It hates weeds. It does need fertilising and um, it needs X amount of sunshine as well. And then you have to be very careful that you don't overcook it, as we would say, in the ground. So, you know, for nine months, it's in the ground. It is just one seed. But when you have 60,000 individual seeds that grow into 60,000 bulbs and you're trying to manage weed control, watering, fertilisation, hand harvesting, it gets a bit overwhelming. So in that first year, whenever you had the weeds and you didn't have the sunshine, did you just were you just letting it off to do its own thing? Did you not realise that there was all that maintenance in it or did you just find it very difficult to keep on top of the maintenance? We didn't realise it was so labour intensive and then when we did, yes, it was very difficult because if you're trying to ask people to come down and hand weed and you're talking five and six and seven friends and a week later you're going, the weeds are back waving their heads at us, could you come back down? They're all kind of going, ah, I'm kind of busy today and it takes money. So we had no money to pay people that it was physically impossible to hand weed an acre of land and week in, week out do that. What kept you going then? Why didn't you just say, do you know what, this isn't worth it? I think the naivety of I really, you know, think this can work and I really wanted to see what would come out of the ground. At the end of the day, I was like, this is not going to get the better of me and I want to see this fabulous garlic, which we did get out of the ground, overcooked, and we left it in too long and put it into polytunnels to try and dry, which a beautiful storm came and blew 75% of the crop away and soaked it. So we had to get skips and get rid of it and start all over again. And I think you realised you could grow it. I really wanted to prove a point to myself this can grow and I really would love to see what next year would bring me. Well, it sounds like you had a gut feeling there that this was going to come right in the end. Yes, because at the end of the day, it's fresh food. And from that little snippet of year one, of course, there was garlic that we could taste. Didn't look very pretty and it wasn't saleable, as in we needed to keep every bit we could for seed. But the taste was magnificent. It was absolutely, you know, like angels dancing on your tongue. It was out of this world that that really spurred me on to kind of say, well, imagine if that was so bad this year. Imagine if we got a 50 percent right next year what would come out of the ground and it's like Christmas coming you're waiting and waiting and waiting because mother nature the elements all play a part in this so it's not programmed that you're waiting with bated breath for June maybe the end of June beginning of July whatever the weather conditions to see next year what you have grown after nine months and it's very exciting very rewarding also whenever it came up and you were happy with it and you said yep we're on to a winner here what was the next step who did you approach in terms of selling it um, that was year two year three we got approached uh, by a couple of companies but we had to pull back from the marketplace because the demand was there and obviously your seed is your own crop so we took the long-term vision like brewing a good whiskey we'll keep back 60 percent of our crop we'll reinvest that back into the ground as our own seed and then we will go for year four so in actual fact uh, last year we only tipped at the local market which was our Boyne Valley our Boyne Valley food producers our lovely restaurants and um, the Eastern Seaboard Tankard's Townhouse and very much the local community were very supportive so the small amount we had to sell we did that locally we put the the seed back into the ground so last year or this year sorry we partnered up with LaRousse Foods and they have been a fantastic support uh, for a small farmer grower producer they have a fantastic network and they distribute the whole way through 32 counties so it gave us that exposure into the areas that obviously I can't just pop into my car with two kilos of garlic and drive to Kerry and then Donegal and Galway and Limerick and Kilkenny and Cork that they got it out there. They were so supportive as well of going, you lead us, you tell us what you can do. 
make sure there's enough profit in it for you so you stay in business. We don't mind what you're looking for on a price perspective, but um, you need to make money and obviously they need to make money, but they are very much supportive of a grower and will hold your hand and work with you. So we got the exposure through LaRousse Foods this year and thankfully the media have been fantastically supportive of us. What is next then for Drummond House Garlic? Where do you see the business going in the next 12 months? Well, we have a little surprise up our sleeve for next year. Um, We have been trialling out Irish asparagus. So that's three years been cooking away on the slow burner, which asparagus has to do. So we're hoping to launch Drummond House Asparagus next spring, April, May, as the first ever large commercial grower of Irish grown asparagus seasonally. There'll be about a five to six week window and we're really excited about that. The feedback is coming. We are hoping to do a couple of um, merchandising products of our scape pesto, smoked garlic, um, pickled garlic bulbs as well. So they're in trials and again few blips along the way but we will get there. It sounds like you love a challenge that you don't take the easy route. I don't know whether I do believe you should get up every day and do something that scares the living daylights out of you because that's what living is all about and I do think you do need to be a bit mad maybe a bit naive and the mixture so when those bad days come which they do for any grower and any farmer in this country but I would totally promote anyone and say in your area find something do it small do it niche and your community and your area will all benefit and so will you and I think that's the way forward for a lot of smaller farmers and keeping us out there growing and you know we're definitely on the the food destination of the world with some of the best crops the best farms the best food in the country and I would totally and utterly say to everybody think it and try it If listeners would like to find out more information about your garlic, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, Any shops or restaurants or artisan shops around the country, please feel free to contact me at Drummond House Garlic through our webpage, Facebook or Twitter, or contact LaRousse Foods directly because we, we have the distribution network there and we'd only be too delighted to be the length and breadth of Ireland. Fantastic. Listen, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for giving me some of your garlic. I look forward to trying it. Thank you very much for your time. Enjoy your evening. Purple potatoes. I've yeah. never seen purple potatoes before and I'm the daughter of a greengrocer. Are you really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the wife of a potato farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and you obviously weren't very happy with the potatoes he was growing on a no, normal we, basis. We, we are happy with them. It just being quite honest about it. I, I married into a farming family. I do, knew nothing about farming. And um, I looked at how hard he worked for the lovely product he produced. Roosters, pinks, queens. And... Um, there, there was just no joy in farming anymore. It was becoming harder and harder with the tillage and the potatoes as the years went by. And I helped him an awful lot on the farm. So for me to go out and get a job really wasn't the answer to our problems. So more to get my head out into a happier place. I uh, was looking into different types of varieties of potatoes because I love food. I'm always watching what the restaurants are doing. And I stumbled across in collaboration with a conversation with a guy in Drogheda who grows miniature vegetables and uh, stumbled across purple potatoes and I said to David you know we're growing potatoes anyway this is going to be no different and he thought it was nuts but he said if it keeps you happy (laughs) we'll do it so I just bought half a ton of seed in 2015 I planted them or David did and I got on my phone and I started following some chefs on Twitter and Facebook took photographs of the field on a weekly basis <laughs> and gradually built up a following and when they came out of the ground some chefs started using them and I'm in my second season now and it's become to me it's a success story. In terms of the potato is it the colour that has made it a success is it the flavour is it a combination of the two? They're beautiful to taste but at the end of the day they're a potato they're not a sweet potato they're not they're, they're just a potato so the taste is a lovely potato taste so it's the color that the chefs love it adds color to the plate and they're so versatile they can cook them up a lot of different ways there was the purple one violetta i did last year and i have five different varieties this year so they all have different flavors and they're different shades of purple two purple uh, shades and one light pink red shade it's called red emily and it's e double m a l i e and it's lovely 
And then I have two white varieties. One of them dates back to the 1800s. Men, and, and I suppose a lot of women as well, not me personally, they're all about the flowery spud. They love the flowery spud. Are they flowery or how would you describe the, the texture? Yeah, they are flowery. The violetta and the, and the red emily, I would describe them like a rooster. Because to me, a rooster, you can literally do anything. You can mash them up and they're lovely and flowery, or you can roast them, um, or you can steam them and slice them. So to me, they're the best of both worlds. They're very versatile. Very versatile. And the two, the two coloured varieties that I do are very much like that. Um, the difference being with the purple one in particular, it's hugely high in antioxidants. So you're getting all the benefits of the potato taste, the versatility of how you can cook it. But all joking aside, from a health point of view, it's a fantastic potato to eat. So it's actually better than the standard potato. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. The the it's an anti-cyanin that naturally produces in the seed that causes the, the purple colour, and that same anti-cyanin produces naturally in beetroot. So though they're not related, because potato is actually related to the tomato, um, but it's the same anti-cyanin that produces the colour. And we all know it's it's like blackberries, blueberries, anything like that is so good for you, and it's no different with the potato. You mentioned getting on to social media and following chefs and that has generated a lot of sales for you. Is that, or is that your main customer base? Is that who you sell to predominantly? Yeah, my son would say to me, Mammy, the phone is never out of your hand and I have an element of guilt about that. But I had to do it to drive this forward. Luckily enough, the chefs were very receptive to it because they have access to purple potatoes, but they have to import them. So they didn't tend to use them an awful lot. So the fact that they could get Irish ones, and they say they're better than the imported ones, and I'll take that, um, they use them more. So last year, popping up in restaurants all over the country were these purple potatoes, which was great. And I felt like I created a market for it. Um, And they're waiting for them this year. They can't wait for the season to come in and try them again. Do you know what I mean? What has this meant to you personally? Uh, It's... it's, it's, I'm not talking a financial thing. Oh, I'm hoping that will come at some stage. I'm not going to lie, but for both myself and my husband, he's really on board with it now. And it's given us a really happy place to go. We can have a positive conversation about the farm, about growing this patch of potatoes that we're growing. It's really positive. And that has fed through to our everyday farming. We're much, we're getting some giddy up back again and we're saying right what can we do to make the rooster sell better do you know what I mean and it's given a whole new positive outlook for the farm we've come from a place where I really wanted him to sell up and and stop you know this is real life it's not it's not a fairy tale do you know what I mean like you can very much get a sense of your passion and your enthusiasm for this product I just love what gives me the enthusiasm for it is that I'm taking care over growing it and the chefs are loving it and I get the feedback and even here today, people are saying how wonderful they tasted, how lovely they looked and what a great product it was. And when you get feedback like that back, you can't be anything but enthusiastic. We'd lost our enthusiasm for growing potatoes on our farm. You've also reconnected with some people that you went to school with because yeah. of, the, of this new product. Yeah, Marita, who grows Drummond House Garlic. Marita and I were at school together. We're from the same town. We both moved, got married and moved slightly outside of the town. And I had these potatoes in the ground. And I was listening to their local radio one day and I heard Marita on it talking about her garlic. And I said, well, that's interesting because she's doing something different as well. So I made a phone call and we got back in touch and we've been on a great journey together the last number of months. Yeah. How important is collaboration in this area? Because Boyne Valley seems to have a multitude of very good high-end artisan food producers. I think when you find the right people, it's like any other club you're in. <laughs> you gravitate towards the people who are like-minded, who think the same way as you do. I can be having a bad day thinking I'm doing all this work for nothing. I'm, I can go to Marita's and she'll talk me out of it and it's vice versa. So it's really, really important. And without leaving the men out of it, because they are important, it's great to have another woman because we tend to be more positive. We tend to be more proactive, you know, and our husbands sometimes are looking at us saying, you're mad like, and we're just going, yeah, we know, but there'll be something in this at some stage. So she's a great buffer for me and I'm, I would like to think I'm the same for her. So it's been great to have her around. And I'd have to mention another great lady, Olivia Duff. And she really spearheads and epitomises the Boyne Valley Food Series and she does such great work.
And Olivia is a Fulcher Ireland food champion. I believe so, yeah. I've only come in contact with Olivia in the last couple of months, but I find her really inspiring and really enthusiastic. And that's what it's all about. You need to surround yourself with people like that. Well, that is great advice. And your story about being in the farming industry and it, you know, you maybe not having that joie de vivre for it. No. What advice would you give to somebody listening that is in farming and isn't happy with it and is thinking about getting out of it? I would look to, don't try and reinvent the wheel. I think Marita used that phrase earlier, but it's true. We did something with potatoes because that's what we were doing anyway. I think if you try and do something completely different from from a stop point, it's going to take a lot of money and it's, it's just not for everybody. I think if you're in farming in this country at the moment, you don't have a lot of money. That's a given. So try and do something with what you're already producing. But try not to do something that your neighbour three miles down the road is doing. But it, it just takes that eureka moment. But you have to sit down, you have to be constantly thinking about it. And once you get it, hang on to it. And it takes hard work and it takes knockbacks. And it takes your children saying to you, get off the phone, mammy, ten times a day. And you do get your guilt. But you hope at the end of it something good will come out of it. Stick to what you know. Stick to what you do best. And try and find a spin on it that's different. Because that's, I think, the way farming is going in Ireland. Well, it's always lovely to talk to somebody with such passion like yours. So thanks very much for sharing mm. your story. If people would like to connect with you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? Bally McKenney Farm. B-A-L-L-Y-M-A-K-E-N-N-Y. Fantastic. Um, thanks, Maria. And thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Two really lovely, wonderful, inspirational ladies based in the Boyne Valley, which is blessed with a multitude of fantastic producers and hospitality businesses. And you heard Maria mention Olivia Duff there, who is one of the Fulcher Ireland's food champions and is a real motivator and a real asset to the area. She was also a speaker at the conference. And if you check out BoyneValleyFoodSeries.ie, you find details of everything that's happening in the region. And there is a lot going on there so well worth having a look. So sadly that brings us to the end of tonight's show which will be on the podcast later in the week SharonNoonan.com or subscribe to it free of charge on iTunes or use the podcast app so you can have a listen anytime that suits you. Thanks so much for tuning in and to all of this evening's guests that took time to talk to me at the Food Connect conference organised by Fulcher Ireland. So thanks to Paulo Canila, Daniel Klein, Justin Green, Maria Flynn and Marita Collier. Until next week, have a good one. Bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.